0: It loves a good plot twist. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast on your favorite podcast app. Future you will thank you. The Peter Schiff Show. Today's podcast was recorded yesterday. If you want to listen to my podcasts commercial-free the day that I record them, go to shiftradio.com slash premium. It only costs $5 a month. Today's podcast is sponsored by Raycons. With Raycons, you get the same high-quality audio as other premium audio brands, but at half the price. Go to buyraycon.com slash gold to get 15% off store-wide with the promo code HOLIDAY plus free shipping. On Friday, we got another worse-than-expected inflation report in the form of the November PPI. Now, one of the reasons you know the report was worse than expected was that the markets were all trading higher right before the report was released. Dow futures were up almost 200 points, and gold was trading up over $10. Back over $1,800 ounce. the U.S. dollar was lower because everybody expected the dollar to be weaker, and gold and the markets to be stronger once they received the good news that inflation was coming down. But once again, investors were disappointed by a hotter than expected report on inflation. And again, it makes no sense to me that so many people expect inflation to be coming down when nothing the Federal Reserve has done thus far is equal to the task. In fact, It's not just that what the Fed has done is inadequate to reduce inflation, but the U.S. government itself has done nothing to reduce inflation. In fact, everything they've done is throw gasoline on the inflation fire because ever since inflation became an obvious problem that people were complaining about, the only response we've had from Washington is an increase in government spending, which just compounds the inflation problem. And as I've been discussing on this podcast, the Federal Reserve has been filling the pipeline with inflation for over 10 years, and it hasn't even turned off the spigot. All it's done is slow down the rate at which it pumps new inflation into that pipeline. In order to turn off the monetary spigots, the Federal Reserve has to move interest rates above the inflation rate. So long as the Federal Reserve artificially suppresses interest rates by holding them below the rate of inflation, something that would never happen in a free market, but as long as this is Fed policy, it is stoking inflation's fires, not putting out the inflation. And again, it's not going to make any headway unless it has cooperation from the government. You can't have fiscal stimulus and fight inflation. You need contractionary fiscal policy married with contractionary monetary policy to reverse this process. And of course, none of it can be accomplished, not only without a severe recession, but without triggering a worse financial crisis than the one that was experienced in 2008, which is why the Fed is not actually fighting inflation. Of course, it can't admit that, so it has to pretend that it's fighting inflation while it secretly continues to create more. But turning to the PPI number itself, the expectation was for a 0.2% rise in November producer prices, and that would have matched the 0.2% from the prior month. Well, not only did the November number come out above estimates at 0.3, but then they went back and revised the October up 0.2 to up 0.3 as well. So in the way, the forecast was correct in that both November and October producer prices increased by the same amount, but it was wrong in that both months increased by 50% more than everybody expected. Now, the year-over-year number, which was expected to be 7.2 and a big drop from 8% from the prior year-over-year number, that did come down, but not as much as estimates, it came down to 7.4%, and that was actually above the consensus range, which went from 7.1 to 7.3, and if you take out food and energy, it was even a bigger miss, they were expecting an increase of 0.2, the real increase was 0.4, again, above the range of estimates, which went from 0.1 to 0.3, and adding insult to injury, They took the unchanged number that was reported in the previous month, and they revised that up to an increase of 0.1. Again, looking at the year-over-year core, taking out food and energy, the expectation was for an increase of 5.9. Instead, the increase was 6.2, once again, above the consensus forecast range, which went from a low of 4.8 to a high of 6.1. Even if you take out food, energy, and trade services, it was another beat. Instead of rising 0.2, which would have matched the previous month, it increased by 0.3, and the year over year gain was 4.9. But the bottom line on this inflation report card is that even though it may not be an F because it was a little bit lower than the prior month, it's still a D minus, and that's not a passing grade, even though it's still below the year-over-year numbers from the prior month, you're still looking at 7.4% year-over-year increase in producer prices. And even if you strip out food and energy, you're still looking at 6.2%. That's more than triple the 2% target. It doesn't matter that it's not 8%. It's nowhere near 2%. There is no real progress being made, and there's zero evidence that any of the so-called progress that has been made is permanent. There is no proof that this is anything other than a temporary decline in an ongoing upward trend, meaning that the high year-over-year rates of inflation that we put in may well be eclipsed in the next run up. Everything ebbs and flows, and that's all that's happening with inflation. There's going to be some relief. Every bull market has a correction, and we have a bull market in inflation. Inflation is going to keep going higher, even if temporarily we get a correction and the rate of increase declines. The annual rate of increase is still high, just not as high as it once was. A 7.4% year over year increase in producer prices is bad. Is it as bad as the high watermark, which I think was about 11%? No, it wasn't as horrific as that, but it's still a bad number and we're still on a bad trajectory. And I think sometime in 2023, we're going to set a new high watermark for producer prices, particularly when the current recession ratchets up to a new gear. And that's likely going to be when we get the big increase in unemployment. And I know there's a lot of people out there who are waiting for, in fact, hoping for the big increase in unemployment because they think that's their get out of jail free card for inflation. People assume that even though the Fed's not making any real headway on its goal of 2% inflation, as soon as it gets some help from unemployment, Once unemployment spikes up, well, that'll do the Fed's job and that's going to bring inflation back down. No, the big spike in unemployment is going to kick inflation into a higher gear. And the reason that's going to happen is that the minute the Fed has to acknowledge the weakness in the labor market and starts adjusting its monetary policy by moving it to an easier trajectory, whether or not it actually cuts rates or returns to quantitative easing, but just indicates that there's a change in policy in recognition of the weakness in the labor market that up until this point, the Fed has completely denied even existed, the dollar is going to tank. And when that happens, you're gonna see a huge surge in commodity prices. And all of this is gonna exert more upward pressure on both producer and consumer prices. The main reason that we haven't seen a bigger increase in those prices is because of the strong dollar in relation to other currencies. But the dollar has only been strong because the Fed was committed to doing whatever it takes to fight inflation and continue to hike rates. Once the Fed has to surrender in that battle, well, then the dollar is going to be collateral damage and all the so-called progress is going to be reversed because a weak dollar is going to put upward pressure on prices, but not just prices, but on budget deficits, trade deficits, and on long-term interest rates. Remember, as the recession deepens, revenues decline going to the government, spending increases, we have larger budget deficits and more pressure on the Fed to create even more inflation to monetize those deficits. In fact, despite the superficially strong jobs market, we continue to get more evidence of the underlying weakness in the jobs market We got the weekly unemployment claims on Thursday, and the increase was slightly better than estimates of 230,000. But the more significant number was the continuing claims, which are now at 1.7 million. This is the highest number of Americans filing continued unemployment claims since February 5th. Well, it's that time of year again, the holidays. And while the season is a lot of fun, it's also a lot of work. First of all, there's a lot of travel and that can be pretty hectic. And now with all the inflation, quite expensive. And of course, once you get to your destination, Oftentimes, you're seeing family members that you might not always see eye-to-eye to to when it comes to politics, and that potentially could make for some uncomfortable family moments. And then there's all the gift buying and having to figure out what gift you're going to get for each person on your list. So in the spirit of giving, I'm sharing with you my go-to gift idea that works for everyone on your list, and that's premium audio products from Raycon and Raycon has a special holiday offer right now go to buyraycon.com gold to get 15% off site-wide plus free shipping when you use the promotional code holiday Raycon wireless earbuds headphones and speakers offer premium sound useful features, and an almost custom-made, comfortable fit and up to 54 hours of battery life. And anyone you gift them to will start using them right away. Whether they use the speakers to start a party in their living room or escape the party completely and use the earbuds for some much needed zen meditation. And as the person gifting them, you're going to love the fact that they start at half the price of other premium audio brands. So make it easy on yourself this holiday season and give everyone the gift of premium audio Audio with Raycon. In fact, the earbuds even make great stocking stuffers. But the best part of receiving Raycon earbuds as a gift this holiday season is that you get to enjoy them throughout the year. I use my Raycon all the time, whether I'm walking on the beach or exercising at the gym. Right now, go to buyraycon.com gold to get 15% off site-wide plus free shipping with the code HOLIDAY. That's code HOLIDAY at buyraycon.com slash gold to get 15% off your Raycon purchase. Buyraycon.com slash gold. Also, if you look at the way the markets reacted to the hotter than expected inflation news, particularly in the precious metals markets, it indicates that investors are finally slowly waking up to the reality that when we get these bad inflation numbers, it's not a sign that the Fed is just going to have to fight harder to win its inflation war. It's a sign that the Fed is losing that war and that it's incapable of fighting hard enough to actually win. Ultimately, it's going to surrender. Inflation is going to win. And investors are slowly coming to terms with that reality. Because when the number came out, gold did exactly what it's been doing. It sold off All of its gains were erased. Gold was up better than $10, I think around $12, $13 before the number, and it went into negative territory. But just briefly, and it quickly recovered, and it closed up almost $8.5 on the day, just under $1,798 an ounce. Silver did even better. It closed up $0.41 at $2,346. So it ended up finishing the day with strong gains. Now, on previous hotter than expected inflation numbers, whether it was PPI or CPI, which we're going to get next week, gold and silver were getting crushed on the news that inflation was higher than estimates because of the fear of a more aggressive Fed fight. That would mean rates would be higher for longer, which would be a headwind for gold. Well, now the markets are shrugging that off. You still get the knee-jerk, reflexive kind of reaction as the Algorithms immediately sell into that news, but cooler heads are prevailing. And people who are actually thinking are taking advantage of these computer sell programs to buy the dip in gold and silver because they understand that higher than expected inflation is not bad news for gold and silver. It is good news for gold and silver. It's bad news for the dollar. And the dollar did rally on the news, it was down before the news, and then it had a big spike, but it ended up surrendering most of its gains on the day. It still closed up, but just slightly, I think about 16 basis points, the entire gain on the week for the dollar index was just 0.4, and in fact, it closed below 105 for the second consecutive week. Gold only finished down the week about one-tenth of one percent. It ended last week just above 1,800. It finished this week just below, again, around 1,798. But silver, not only did it have an up day of 1.6 percent, but it was up 1.3 percent on the week, closing at 2,346. Silver is now positive on the year by 0.2 percent, and it's 33 percent above its low from a couple of months ago, Silver is in a big bull market, and again, it's a stealth bull market. Nobody is talking about it, which is exactly what I wanna hear, silence when it comes to this bull market, because the longer it's ignored, the more progress it's going to make before it has an even meaningful correction, and that's not gonna happen until a lot more people get off the sidelines and get into the market because they notice how much silver has already gone up. And my guess is that probably won't happen until the price of silver has doubled or more from its low. Taking a look at the reaction in the stock market to the worst-than-expected inflation news, the Dow closed pretty much near the lows of the day, down about 300 points. It closed the week with a 2.8% loss. S&P beaten up a little bit more on the day, down seven tenths of a percent, and three point four percent on the week. The Nasdaq fared even worse than that; it was down 08 percent on Friday and down three point eight percent for the week. But the big loser on the day and the week was the Russell two thousand. That index finished down one point two percent on Friday, and it ended the week with a five point one percent. Loss. Of course, the bigger losers were in the more speculative type of stocks. Kathy Woods, Arc Innovation Fund, down 1.4% on the day, but it finished the week down a whopping 9.2%. Now, one of the big losers on the week was Coinbase. And I want to talk about that stock in particular because it's now down better than 90% from the high that it made the day of its direct listing. Remember, it didn't do a traditional IPO. It just went for a direct listing. And the first price it traded at was $381. And on that very day, the price was bid up to $429.54. It's never been that high since. And I remember watching it tick up there. I was listening to the commentators on CNBC, and they were so excited about this move up in Coinbase. They thought it would keep on going. This was the best investment that anybody could imagine because it allowed for the most exposure to crypto and to the widespread adoption that everybody on CNBC was confident would follow. So this was the best way to play crypto. In fact, it was also the best way to play the NFT market because they eventually launched an NFT exchange. Well, the stock closed at a new low on Friday at $40.24. In fact, even on the year, it's down better than 80%. To me, this is a very ominous sign for Bitcoin. Yeah, it's still hanging out at the 17000 level. As I'm recording this podcast on Saturday morning, it's just under 17200 but again as I said on my last podcast we're creating a new ceiling not a new floor. In fact, you would imagine that Coinbase would be gaining value because FTX, one of its biggest competitors, is no longer in business. Plus, one of the things that everybody is claiming is that we need regulation. Of course, we need it like a hole in the head, but everybody says we need to have more regulation in crypto and Coinbase is regulated. Coinbase is a publicly traded company in the US, regulated by the SEC. So it should be the new favorite to win from the FTX demise because it has what everybody claims we want. It's regulated. So investors don't have to worry because you've got the government's good housekeeping seal of approval. But instead of benefiting from the collapse of a major competitor and the fact that it is regulated, it is suffering too. In fact, one of the people who is pounding the table the hardest for more regulation in crypto is Kevin O'Leary. And one of the things that's really bothering me about Mr. Wonderful is that he's acting as if he lost money on FTX because he lost $15 million. Well, what Kevin O'Leary doesn't like to acknowledge is the fact that the money he lost was the money he was paid by Sam Bankman-Fried to pump ftx yes he took the money that he was paid and used it to buy ftx tokens and to invest in ftx the company but he wasn't investing his own money he was gambling with the house's money or more correctly he was gambling with the money that sam bankman freed stole from his customers and gave to kevin o'leary to promote ftx now according to kevin o'leary he didn't even invest the entire $15 million that he got from Sam Bankman-Fried. He only invested about $10 million, so he was able to keep $5 million, But he ended up having to pay that in commissions and taxes on the $15 million of income that he earned to be a promoter of FTX. But for him to be going out there now and pretending that he actually lost money, he lost nothing other than his reputation. But other people did lose real money. They weren't paid by Sam Bankman-Fried, and these people are a lot less wealthy than Kevin O'Leary. They took their hard-earned money and put it on the FTX platform, and they lost it, in part because of Kevin O'Leary. It's possible that some of the people who lost actual money in FTX, the reason they chose to open up an account at FTX and deposit their money or their crypto there was because of Kevin O'Leary's endorsement. So rather than pretending to be one of the victims of the scam, he should acknowledge his own culpability in helping to perpetuate the scam. Whether he knew it was a scam or not, he was paid to promote a scam. And that was probably one of the reasons he didn't do all the due diligence that he should have. And I think he should have been more forthright when he was publicly talking about how great Sam Bankman, fried and FTX were, he should have disclosed that he was paid $15 million to express that opinion. Also, despite the collapse going on in crypto and Coinbase hitting a new record low, hardcore Bitcoin fanatics remain as enthusiastic as ever. I was listening to this interview with Max Kaiser, who had predicted that Bitcoin would finish the year above 200,000, yet he has not tempered his enthusiasm one bit nor acknowledged his mistake looking at Bitcoin in December, trading at around 17000 No, no, far as he's concerned, nothing bad has happened. Bitcoin is as strong as ever. In fact, he was scolding anybody who is complaining about their Bitcoin losses by saying they're just speculators, they're not investors. He said, if you don't have at least a four year time horizon, you have no business in Bitcoin, you should just take your money to a casino and gamble. Well, Max Kaiser doesn't know the difference between investing and speculating because buying Bitcoin has never been an investment. It's always been a speculation. There is no return on Bitcoin. You are simply gambling on price appreciation. And now he claims that Bitcoin gamblers were in fact investors and they should just hold for the long term, like Warren Buffett, whose time horizon is forever. The difference is Warren Buffett buys income-producing assets. He buys businesses that he thinks will survive forever, earn money forever, and pay dividends forever. Bitcoin doesn't earn anything and doesn't pay anything. It's not the type of asset that Warren Buffett would hold forever. In fact, Warren Buffett himself refers to Bitcoin as rat poison, so it makes no sense for Max Kaiser to invoke the name of Warren Buffett as he is pumping Bitcoin. In fact, one of the other lies I heard Max Kaiser tell about Bitcoin was the economic boom that is supposedly going on in El Salvador because they were smart enough to make Bitcoin legal tender. El Salvador is suffering dramatically. The losses are huge as a result of this blunder Into Bitcoin, but not only is Max Kaiser in denial of this reality, but in his mind, he has actually concocted an alternative reality in which El Salvador is thriving. Turning to some of the news on the week, on Friday, the Biden administration announced that it was approving a $36 billion bailout for the Teamsters' underfunded pension. There are about 350,000 retirees that are drawing benefits from this pension, and that amounts to better than $100,000 per person. Now, this should infuriate so many Americans who don't even have pensions. In fact, a lot of Americans earned a lot less than the Teamsters and have no pensions. Why should they be forced to subsidize the overly generous pensions? of overpaid teamsters. One of the ways you know that they were overpaid was that they didn't contribute enough into their pensions. They were promised a pension where the benefits far exceeded anything they contributed. So they were able to enjoy higher wages because enough money wasn't deducted from their pay to meet the obligations that they expected from their pensions. And the American taxpayer should not be on the hook to make up that shortfall. What should happen is that either current retirees should accept reduced benefits or current workers should be making higher contributions into that pension so that the people who have retired can get their money or the companies themselves that made commitments to their workers should have to dig into their own pockets and make the additional contributions into the pension. The losses should not be shifted to taxpayers, and more specifically, not taxpayers, because nobody's taxes are being raised. All the money to bail out the Teamsters' pension is just going to be created out of thin air. It's just more debt that's going to be monetized. So it's more inflation. So every American will end up paying. But these losses should not be borne by the entire American population because most Americans did not benefit from this pension, that each Teamster is effectively being given $100,000. That amounts to a massive welfare payment being distributed to a small group of Americans paid for by the entire population. Now, a lot of people would say that it's not fair if the Teamsters have to suffer a reduction in their pension. Well, sure, life isn't fair. But what's a lot more unfair is forcing other Americans who don't even have pensions to pay so that the Teamsters can have even larger pensions than what they're actually entitled to based on the amount of money that they've actually contributed into their pensions and the returns that those pensions have actually generated. If you're going to bail out the Teamsters' pensions, you might as well bail out everybody's pension. In fact, it wouldn't be fair to only bail out the Teamsters and not everybody else. And what about all the people who don't have pensions at all? Maybe the government should give everybody some money to make up for the fact that they don't have pensions. Not only is this whole thing unfair and clearly unconstitutional, there's nothing in the constitution that authorizes the U.S. government to bail out anybody's pension, but it also creates an incredible moral hazard. It sends the wrong message that you don't have to fund your pension, You can promise benefits you can't deliver because when the money is not there, the government's just going to make up the difference. What we need is to hold the Teamsters pension accountable for this loss because the administrators of these pensions need to act responsibly. If they're not generating enough returns in the pensions to meet the obligations, they have to increase the contributions or they have to cut the benefits. They can't just do nothing, but now they can do nothing because the government is going to bail them out. And of course, one of the ironies behind why some of these pensions are so underfunded is because they couldn't earn any interest on their bonds because the Federal Reserve kept interest rates at zero. So because nobody can get an adequate return on bonds, a lot of these pensions took on a lot of risk by investing in overpriced stocks And now that the market is coming down, the pensions are underfunded and they don't have enough money to meet their obligations. And this deficit is going to get larger as the bear market continues. I think a lot of these pensions invested in the high flying stocks that have come down the most and still have the most downside because they were forced to gamble to make up for the money that they can no longer earn on conservative investments because the Fed kept interest rates so low. So the government created the problem with artificially low interest rates and turning the stock market into a casino, and now it's exacerbating the problem by creating a moral hazard by rewarding the failed pensions and sending messages to everybody else. There's no reason to act responsibly. You don't have to ask workers to contribute more or accept less. You don't even have to ask employers to increase the contributions to the pensions. We're just going to wait for a government bailout. As a result of this, the problem gets much worse. The number of underfunded pensions will increase, as will the size of the gap, which means the size of the bailout will be that much larger, which means even more money will be printed to fund it, which means everybody suffers even higher inflation. Also, part of the fraud of this entire bailout is that the money to pay for it is coming from the COVID relief money. What does this have to do with COVID? These pensions aren't underfunded because of COVID. It's got nothing to do with that pandemic, yet the emergency slush fund created as a result of that pandemic is now being used for purposes for which it wasn't intended, which is to bail out the Teamsters' pensions. And by the way, there isn't enough money in the Pension Guarantee Corp to cover this. That is another massive unfunded liability on the part of the United States government because just like it guarantees bank accounts, it guarantees pensions. And because it guarantees bank accounts and pensions, there is so much more risk in the system than would exist absent those guarantees because the guarantees themselves create a moral hazard, as I've been saying, because the government guarantees pensions Lots of pensions are underfunded. A lot of them are going to fail, which is the reason the U.S. government is on the hook for all this money, which is why these unfunded liabilities are every bit as real as actual debt, but none of it is accounted for in the $31-plus trillion national debt, because unlike private companies that do account for unfunded liabilities, the U.S. government commits accounting fraud because it completely denies the existence of any unfunded liabilities and acts as if none of those unfunded liabilities are ever gonna to have to be paid. I wanna finish up today's podcast by talking about the latest move by the FTC. They've sued Microsoft to block its proposed acquisition of Activision Blizzard. This is a huge mistake by the FTC. They should not be getting involved in this transaction. They should allow free market forces to operate. All this got started back in 1890. This was part of the populist movement in the United States. Part of that was the passage of the Sherman Antitrust Act in 1890 that ultimately was followed up by the Clayton Antitrust Act in 1914, which put more teeth into the Sherman Act. A lot of this was the backlash Regarding some of the tremendous wealth that was accumulated by the pioneers of American capitalism during the latter part of the 19th century, in in particular, John D. Rockefeller and Standard Oil. That was one of the first companies broken up as a result of antitrust. But what's significant about the breakup of Standard Oil is not that the customers were complaining, because supposedly, All of this antitrust legislation is designed to protect the consumer and make sure that we have a vibrant, competitive economy and that we don't want to have cartelization or monopolization that would harm the consumer because it would allow the companies to gouge them with higher prices. You didn't have the customers complaining about Standard Oil. It was the competitors who were complaining because they had a difficult time competing with Standard Oil. Standard Oil constantly lowered the price that it was charging for kerosene and the consumers were benefiting from lower prices. There was no reason to break up Standard Oil because it wasn't using its dominant position in the market to harm its customers. In fact, its customers were benefiting from that position and it was its competitors That were suffering. In fact, an even greater example of this irony had to do with the Alcoa aluminum case, which was not decided until 1945. But in that Supreme Court case, Judge Leonard Hand wrote the opinion for the majority, in which the court found in favor of Alcoa's competitors and, in fact, sided with these competitors. To the detriment of Alcoa's customers, which were the American public. I'm going to read directly from the decision in which Leonard Hand goes over the reasons that the Supreme Court wanted to break up Alcoa. Quote, it was not inevitable that it should always anticipate increase in demand. Oh, and by it, he's referring to Alcoa. It was not inevitable that Alcoa should always anticipate an increase in demand for ingot and be prepared to supply them. Nothing compelled it to keep doubling and redoubling its capacity before others entered the field. It insists that it never excluded competitors, but we can think of no more effective exclusion than progressively to embrace each new opportunity as it opened and to face every newcomer with new capacity already geared into a great organization, having the advantage of experience, trade connections, and the elite of personnel. In other words, according to the Supreme Court, Alcoa was too good. It excluded people by being such a good company that it did such a good job in anticipating demand and meeting that demand and ramping up production and lowering prices that it wasn't fair to the other companies that couldn't do it as well. And because other companies weren't doing as well as Alcoa, we needed to somehow cripple Alcoa to make it a fair race for everybody else. After all, it wasn't fair to other companies because they couldn't compete with Alcoa. And this so-called leveling of the playing field by artificially hurting the strong so that the weak can survive has damaged the U.S. economy. We would have a more productive, more competitive economy had the government stayed out, had we never had any of this antitrust, had all the proposed mergers and acquisitions that were denied, had they been allowed, we would all be better off because all of these acquisitions that were concocted freely in the market would have been to the benefit of companies by reducing their overall costs by allowing for the buildup of economies of scale through integration, and the result would have been not only lower costs for businesses, but lower prices for customers. Now, the advocates of antitrust always claim that, well, sure, you're going to have these companies lowering prices as they're in the process of monopolizing an industry, But once they've succeeded in killing all the competition, that's when they really gouge their consumers by jacking up prices. And so we have to prevent that from happening by breaking up these companies before they reach that position. But this is all a bunch of BS because that's not what in fact happens. If a company achieves a monopoly because it's so efficient and so competitive, in order to maintain that dominant position, it has to continue to innovate. It has to continue to be competitive and have low prices because the minute it tries to jack prices up, that's when it invites competition. Because if there are oversized profits, the free market sends a message to other people to come into the market and enjoy some of those excess profits. Now, a lot of people think, well, there's barriers to entry because these big companies have resources that other competitors don't have. Well, those other competitors have access to investors. They can raise money. If there's a big profit to be had, capital is gonna seek out that opportunity. Some people claim that, well, the minute somebody tries to compete, the monopolist will just cut the prices and start producing at a loss until they drive the new entrant out of business, but that never happens because the loss to the monopolist would be far too great because the monopolist has the entire industry. If somebody comes in and maybe gets one or 2% market share, if the dominant monopoly is gonna now start losing money with 99% share, the losses are gonna be enormous. They're gonna far exceed what the smaller competitor might lose. And so therefore, even if they try to pretend that they would do that. In reality, they never do. It's always to the advantage of the monopolist to allow a competitor to come in rather than suffer the huge losses that would be necessary to drive that small competitor out of business. And even after you succeed in driving one small competitor out of business, the minute you raise your prices back up, you invite another small competitor and even more losses, and eventually you'll go bankrupt yourself. So this is all BS. The only way anybody has ever really achieved a monopoly is when the government grants it. It's the government that bestows monopolies. It's the government that protects the monopolists from competition through laws and regulations that amount to real barriers to entry. In a real free market economy, It's the markets that protect the consumer, not the government, which is exactly what's going on in the current situation with Microsoft and Activision Blizzard. In fact, it's not just me who has made these criticisms of antitrust. A lot of famous economists have made the same arguments that I'm making, one of them being Alan Greenspan himself. And I know on this podcast, I've quoted from essays that Alan Greenspan had written, as part of Ayn Rand's capitalism, the unknown ideal. And now I'm going to read another quote from one of the essays from the same book. This one relates to Alan Greenspan's take on the Alcoa aluminum case. Quote, Alcoa is being condemned for being too successful, too efficient, and too good a competitor. Whatever damage the antitrust laws may have done to our economy, whatever distortions of the structure of the nation's capital that may have been created, these are less dangerous than the fact that the effective purpose, the hidden intent, and the actual practice of antitrust laws in the United States have led to the condemnation of the productive and efficient members of our society because they are productive and efficient. I couldn't have said it better myself. Remember, in its decision, the Supreme Court didn't have one bad thing to say About Alcoa. It wasn't doing anything wrong. It was punished for doing everything right. According to the Supreme Court, it didn't matter how Alcoa achieved its position. It was the mere fact that it achieved that position that was the problem. It didn't matter that consumers were benefiting from all the good work that Alcoa was doing. That was not the point of antitrust. The actual hidden intent. Of the antitrust legislation was to preserve competition solely for the benefit of competitors, even if it was to the detriment of the very consumers that were supposedly the driving force behind the legislation in the first place. But perhaps the most ridiculous part of the antitrust laws is the presumption that government officials are going to know when a company is too powerful and too dominant and therefore somehow a threat to customers. For example, in the 1950s, in its infinite wisdom, the US government actually tried to break up General Motors under the guise that it constituted a monopoly on the production of automobiles. Apart from the fact that there were other automobile companies in the United States that General Motors competed with, what none of these visionaries in Washington DC could see was the huge competitive threat just over the horizon for not only General Motors, but for all U.S. automobile companies that was going to come from abroad, in particular the rise of Germany and Japan, which began eating not only GM's lunch, but everybody's lunch in the 1970s and the 1980s. But of course, none of these bureaucrats could see that. And so they thought they needed to break up General Motors. And it's a good thing they didn't. Because General Motors would have been in an even worse position to fend off that competitive threat from abroad than it would have been had the government succeeded in breaking it up. But probably the most ridiculous example of the government's lack of foresight into seeing something that's so close, yet somehow so far, was the FTC's lawsuit to prevent Blockbuster Video from merging with Hollywood Entertainment back in 2005. The court was afraid that if they allowed the merger, that Blockbuster would be a monopoly in video renting. Think about how ridiculous that was. Just five years later, Blockbuster filed for bankruptcy. Now it might've gone bankrupt even had the merger been allowed to go through. But the idea that our bureaucrats thought that it was gonna have a monopoly in an industry that was about to go away completely because what nobody in Washington had noticed was what was going on with a tiny company called Netflix. Netflix started in 1997 and by 2005, when this merger was proposed, Netflix had a tiny share of the video rental market, but its share was growing because what Netflix did And they were still doing it this way in 2005 was that you could subscribe to a monthly service that would enable you to rent dvds by mail and you could basically rent as many as you wanted but you'd have to return one video before you could rent another but it was all done through the mail you didn't have to pay the postage and why this was convenient for consumers was they didn't have to drive to the video store to pick up the movie, and then they didn't have to drive back to the video store the following day to drop it off. And of course, a lot of times you would forget to drop it off, you'd get busy, and then you'd have to pay a late fee on the movie. Well, you could avoid the late fees with Netflix because all you had to do is drop it in a mailbox and it would automatically go back. So this was kind of a novel idea, but at that time, nobody really foresaw just how big Netflix would ultimately become and that it would destroy the very company that the FTC was worried would have a monopoly on video rentals if it was allowed to merge with Hollywood Entertainment. The reason the company was called Netflix is because it got started during the dot-com boom in the late 1990s, and you would order the videos online because the company had a website. It didn't have a brick and mortar store but that was the only thing about the company that had anything to do with the internet. It was how you order the DVDs because you watch them the same way you would watch a DVD that you picked up at your local Blockbuster, except that it would arrive in the mail and you wouldn't have to drive to the video store to pick it up. But Netflix is also a great example of how success breeds imitation and how we don't have to worry about monopolies because even though Netflix pioneered this concept and at one point really dominated the streaming marketplace, now look at all the competitors that Netflix has. So many new companies saw the success of Netflix and they wanted a piece of Netflix action. And now you have cutthroat competition among streaming service providers. One piece of trivia is that back in 2000, Blockbuster actually turned down the opportunity to buy the entire Netflix business for $50 million, but it turned it down because it thought Netflix was a joke. It didn't see the potential of that business model. And I don't even think Netflix saw it at that time because nobody could have anticipated the streaming revolution, least of all, the American politicians who wasted all this time and money trying to save a industry that they had no idea was dying because they actually thought it was a monopoly.